I always have a cup or uh, some sort of fluid around. So it's a good thing. I do have a drinking problem. That's why I don't drink beer. You know, if you imagine, if, if anybody. <laughs> Um, let's just say I fit right in with the Chicago Bears fans, right? You know, it's, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. But we want to go back to Genesis uh, uh, one more time. And, uh, and as, you're, as you're getting back there, actually, I just realized my Bible is on the wrong passage. All right. <coughs> One thing that I found that uh, I've always suspected, but I've, I've had hard evidence for the last two years, is that men are uh, sort of, un, you know, unquestionably connected to what they do, what they do for a living. You know, so when you're in a group of guys, you know, I mean, eventually you get around to the question, "What do you do?" You know, and that's not just a question, a trivial question. It's not just asking, you know, "What do you do?" 40 hours a week, it's a question of, you know, how do you see yourself? What are you involved in? And uh, so it's a very common question. And I've seen this particularly the last two years. I don't know how the economy has been up in your neck of the woods, wherever that happens to be. Uh, but Chicagoland got hammered uh, economically, particularly the people who live in my community. Uh, we were seeing guys losing work left and right because Neighborville is a home of a whole lot of middle management. And uh, middle management is what companies start cutting, you know, whenever they start looking for ways to, to save money. So we had to develop a ministry for, for guys that were out of work. And uh, we did this not because we wanted to have a job networking opportunity, but because we knew men out of work had other kinds of needs. Uh, they began to feel less like men. They began to feel less important. They began to feel depressed about how they were serving their family, all these sorts of things. Thankfully, we've seen that group shrink to one guy, you know, for which I'm very thankful, uh, which gives me, actually, I don't even watch the economic indicators anymore. I asked the guy who leads the group, Dave Hubbard, I said, Dave, how many guys we got in the group? And when he said there were one or two, I'm like, Tommy's getting better, you know, so I'm very, very thankful for that. And I've watched these guys go through this over the last two years, and I've seen it underscored that that we're not just people who happen to work, we're people who were made to work. And actually that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, as obviously you're learning everything does. <laughs> and uh, so let's, uh, let's look again. Uh, we'll start in... Uh, you know, why don't we go ahead and start? It's always hard to know. Let me. I'm a. Why don't? See, I can start anywhere. I've read the same passage so many times that I'm like, okay, where where do we go? Uh, I'll start in verse 28. That's simple enough. <coughs> And God blessed them after he created them, male and female, in his image. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over everything that moves on the earth. And then if you were to to look down again in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was coming up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight for, for, uh, and good for food. Uh, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you that you've given us this weekend the time to be away, to retreat uh, from our normal activities, uh, our normal responsibilities and duties, and be able to be here with these brothers in Christ. But we're thankful that uh, you've given us a beautiful sunny day, that you've given us uh, the, the wonder of the, the world that you've made and the opportunity to enjoy it. Now we pray that again as we consider your word and its implications for us, that you'll bless us and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here it is interesting that uh, in, particularly in Genesis chapter 2, uh, when you look at uh, verse 5, uh, it talks about the fact that uh, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And it gives two reasons for that. It says, one, because the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And two, because there was no man to work the ground. You know, So it seems that God created man for a purpose. And we've already talked about being made His image. We've talked about being a vice regent, expressing dominion. But He also made man to work. And so whenever we find in Genesis chapter 3, after man disobeys God, uh, he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is it that he curses? Not only his rule, but he curses his work. He says, now the ground's not going to give up its food for you. Instead, it is going to be through hard work, toil and labor, you know, that you will gain your bread. But he didn't say, because you sin, you now have to work. Because he was working before the sin came into the world. It's just his work was pleasant. His work was beneficial. It was good. It was uh, just sort of organic. It was part of what he did. It felt natural. It felt like those moments in life, you know, where time slows down and everything seems to go well. It probably seemed kind of like Eric Little in the movie Chariots of Fire. I know movie illustrations, they're my favorite. Uh, but Chariots of Fire, I still love the line. Eric Little, of course, was a, a runner, a sprinter, uh, who eventually uh, ran for England in the Olympics. And he's famous because he refused to run on the Lord's Day. So he wouldn't run a race that he was scheduled to run because it was going to be held on the Lord's Day. But there's a great scene in Chariots of Fire uh, at the beginning when his sister who is committed to the missionary movement, wants him to basically skip over the athletic endeavors and to go straight to the mission field. And, uh, and so she's trying to convince him. And he said, uh, you know, Jenny, you know, the Lord has made me fast. And I feel the Lord's pleasure when I run. And I love that. Because what he is saying is when I'm doing what God made me to do, I feel like the universe makes sense. I feel that God is smiling on me. And I think that's the way work was in the garden before sin. And by the way, I think that's what work's going to be like in heaven, in the new, in the new heavens, in the new earth. We'll still be laboring. You know, for those of you who think heaven's going to be boring and you're not going to know what to do and you have to be in the choir forever, you know, one or two of you, your work may be being in the choir because that's what God's made you to do. But the vast majority of you will be doing other kinds of work that God has made you to do. And it won't be like the when is it five o'clock or when does the weekend get here? But it will be, I'm so glad I'm doing what I love, what I'm made to do. So that's kind of the way God made us. We need to kind of understand that. We also need to see the dignity of work. Not only is it dignified because that's what we were made to do even before there was a fall, 
But it's dignified because God actually models for us uh, work right here in this passage. Uh, you, you might miss it if you're not careful. It's verse 7. And we talked about it last night when we talked about being made in His image. We talked about the relational aspect of this very close contact, this mouth-to-mouth contact between God and man. But look again at verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Now, that is interesting. Because in the ancient Near East, there was no God who got His fingers, nails dirty. There's no God who got into the dirt. In that day and age, labor was done by those who were beneath you, not by, not by those who were above you. The higher up you were, the less work you did, particularly hard work or, or work that involved the dirt, the dirt or the dust and that sort of thing. And yet here we see God shows Himself as a laborer, a worker, a craftsman, if you will. And he takes the dirt of the ground. He's not, he's not opposed to, to the ground or getting his hands dirty, but instead he does. I appreciate Tim Keller, pastor in uh, uh, Manhattan, who, who points out that this is an unbelievable statement, not only about the dignity of the people that God has created, but about the dignity of work itself. And you see that actually all throughout the Scripture. You know, the things, the jobs that most people disdain, we, all, we find the people of God doing Jobs like shepherding. You know, this is just a side note for those of you who hear every Christmas about how bad shepherds are. You know, this happens. I'm telling you, I've heard this sermon over and over again. You know, can you believe that the angels reveal themselves as shepherds? You know, they couldn't testify in court, which is true, but there are a lot of reasons for that. Who had these lowly jobs. They were the bottom of society. And I'm like, oh, you mean like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You know, because they're all shepherds. And Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. You know, and so clearly there was no ignoble nature to work or labor, even that which is considered disgusting. And yet God uses it to protect His people. You find that they're welcomed into Egypt because their job is shepherding. If you go back to the account in, uh, in Genesis, they're welcome because they do a job the Egyptians didn't want to do because they served a God that saw all work as noble. Because it reflected God's own character who gets His hands in the dust, who does the work. So, I want us first to think about the dignity of work. Now, I could ask you guys all the question, what, what is it that you do or what, what is your job? And then I would ask a follow-up question. Do you feel like you're able to be the man that God's called you to be in the labor you know, that you're doing? Because that's kind of where the rub comes in for us, isn't it? You know, we're not in the new heavens and new earth. You know, we are dealing with thorns and thistles and toil and, and trials and all of that in our labor. And sometimes it's hard to, to determine whether we're doing the very thing that God kind of made us to do. And we're prone to look at work again, not as a dignified or noble thing or a thing we're made to do, but instead we look at it as sort of an inconvenience, you know, something we don't want to do. And, and when we get to there, we need to be very, very careful. Um, there are several passages. Paul's very clear about uh, not only the dignity of work, but the necessity of work. Uh, two passages for you. Second uh, Thessalonians three ten. This is a this is sort of a, a, a great parental line if you're a parent, particularly if you have sons. Uh, this is what Paul says: For even when we were with you, we would give you this command: If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You know, that's a good motivator for children. You know, if any man will not work, let him not eat. 
You know, Paul says not only is it a dignified thing to do, but it's a necessary thing to do. Or in 1 Timothy 5.8, in a discussion about widows and about them having support, Paul says the following, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, not only is it a dignified thing, but it's a necessary thing. Paul says that it shows your love for God, it shows your faithfulness when you are working to provide for your family, when you're working to provide for your relatives. And by the way, here he's probably talking about aunts, grandmothers, those sorts of people as well. Because he was saying if there is someone who is a widow, who is a vulnerable person in their society, and they don't have a husband to provide for them, other members of their family, i.e. someone who's not as close, should be providing for them. That that shows the under, appropriate understanding of the necessity and the, and the beauty of work. And so it's not bad. It's not bad that part of the reason we work is to provide for our family. Sometimes I hear that kind of skewed in our world. You know, well, that's not very good motivation. I'm like, well, Paul seems to think it is. You know, that's part of the reason God gives us work is to provide for us. You know, but... We need to zoom out and think a little bit more. Not, okay, so it's dignified, it's necessary, but what else is important to know about work? You know, one is that our attitude about work is essential. Our attitude about it. You know, how do we think of our work? Is it simply a drudgery we try to get through? Is it something that we do the very least we can? You know, or is it something that we want to do more than that? You know, I just spent the afternoon uh, with some uh, Green Bay fans. And I know you'll find it hard to believe there could be some in this group. Um, but I've been getting an education this whole weekend on the Green Bay Packers. You know, I feel like I know more about them than I know about the Chicago Bears. And I live around there. Because clearly they talk more about the Packers on the newscasts around uh, and where you guys live than they talk about the Bears where I live. You know, usually we're talking about some politician that's under indictment or something. Uh, there's more than one to choose from. I I wish I were kidding. Uh, It's actually pretty sad. Uh, Anyway, so I've been getting an education, and one thing I've sort of picked up on from you guys is that there's certain Packers you like better than other Packers. And you know the the ones you tend to like? The The ones who work hard. The ones who don't complain. The ones who support the team. The ones you can count on. And clearly the ones who can catch the stupid ball. I, I, I picked up on that. Dropping the ball as a receiver is a bad thing. You know, so I, I get that. I, I'm learning. I appreciate you guys helping me out. I'm a college football guy. So I, you know, the, the, the subtleties of professional football sometimes are lost on me. So clearly catching the ball is important. You know, but um, it's, well, why? Because that's a guy doing his job. That's somebody who's doing what he's, what he's paid to do. So what are we looking for in ourselves as we think about ourselves as workers who are Christians? Well, I think that we can find uh, Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, very helpful. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with all your might. So don't, don't do it half-heartedly. In other words, if God has given you the energy, the strength, the opportunity, and the ability to do something, go for it. You know, it's uh, uh, this is where Nike theology actually does come in. When it comes to your work, just do it. Do it with all your might. You know, half-heartedness doesn't bring honor or glory to God. Now you say, I don't, you know, I just can't do that with my job. Then find a job where you can. 
You know, where can I use my gifts and abilities with all my mind to bring glory to God? We see the same idea emphasized in Colossians chapter three, verse twenty-three, and Colossians three seventeen. Uh, I'll reverse the order. Three seventeen. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the God, to our God, the Father, through Him. Or in Colossians three twenty-three, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, not for men. See, Paul has this idea, just as I said, we need to think about our stuff as God's stuff, not our stuff. And it helps us treat it different, it helps us think about it different. But we need to think about our work in the same way. Our work is not being done for the guy who signs our paycheck or the girl who signs our paycheck. It's not being done for the administrator, for the principal, for the big boss. Paul says, do your job as though you're reporting to Jesus. Now, can you imagine that annual review? You know, uh, if you can, you'll probably go a lot further toward doing the kind of work and having the attitude toward work that we should have. But at the end of the day, I want to be able to answer to Him. I want to do it like I would do it for Him. You know, so for those of you who are who are like me and have worked for some bad managers, and I I both worked for bad managers and been a bad manager, so I know from both perspectives. You know, and you've done that. And you know the job is getting harder and the demands are going up. And even though you might actually like using your gifts and abilities in it, it becomes hard to do because the boss is a pain in the neck to work for. You know, you think, ah, ah, ah. they're a slacker. Why, why should I try hard? They're not, gonna, they're not even going to notice. Why should I bother? Paul says, you've got you to change the mental picture. You're not doing it so the boss will be happy. You're doing it because you want to bring honor to Jesus Christ. You want to do it in such a way that you can submit your work, your timesheet, you know, your performance. You want to submit it to Him. And that's, that totally changes our orientation. So how good or bad my boss is is irrelevant because, you know what, we're really working for a perfect boss. A perfect boss. So how are we working? Now let me give a small caveat here. I might be talking to some guys. I, I tend to talk to, to young men who are just thinking about work, and I, I, I want them to not be afraid of work. I don't want them to, to disdain work. I want them to see work as dignified and essential and see the attitude to be important. Um, but there are some people here in a room this size uh, who have allowed work to become their God. They don't do their work as though they were working for God. They do their work as though the work itself is God. And that's where it becomes unhealthy. And it's like so many things in the Christian life. Anything good can, can, can become bad when we lose perspective. When we lose perspective. For instance, I'm in, my job is ministry. I'm a professional Christian. It's the best gig. I'm telling you, you get to be a Christian and get paid for it. So, uh, you know, there, there are no openings. So none of you can come into it that aren't in there already. You know, being paid to be a Christian is pretty cool. But even people who are paid to be Christians, like myself, can often make the job God. In other words, you begin thinking that it's your job and your job performance that makes you significant, that makes you special, that uh, is where your reputation is, where your hope lies, where your future is secure. And we start treating it in a lot like a God, and Tim Keller calls it an idol, as do many others. And we make our job an idol. Instead of doing our job for the glory of Jesus, we do our job for the glory of ourselves, for our own glory, for the glory of the job itself, rather than for the glory of God. And, and that's when we need corrective. You know, you can do this with anything, by the way. You can do this with your relationship with a friend. You can do it with a relationship with your wife. You can do this in, uh, you know, even... 
in your sports teams. Well, of course not the Packers. You know, I don't know that, you know, but, you know, I always laugh. I, I say this in Chicago and, and uh, people roll their eyes at me. But in Chicago, we have multiple tabernacles that hold 50,000 people or more. You know, one is at Wrigley, and one is at Sailor One, and one is at Soldier Field, and the other is at the United Center. And I've been to all those places. I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful not only that I've been to those places, but I've been to all those places for free. And uh, which is another advantage of being a religious professional. People figure, you know, I should just buy his ticket. I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. So, it's awesome. It's like, you know, and to be honest, what I started to figure out, at least in Chicago, people do that because they figure the odds of their team winning are better if you take a religious professional with you to the game. And so I realized I was just this big, giant Jesus rabbit's foot, you know? And uh, and if they win, I get invited again, you know? So it's really, it's really sweet. So I, I'm always cheering for them. But I've been to those places. And there's a unique and, and I'm a Presbyterian, right? So uh, let's just say when we get exuberant about worship, we all clap in time. You know what I'm saying? So you know, worship's really going, and we're all like... I mean, that's, that's just about as awesome as worship ever gets in terms of exuberance. And then I see these same guys... You know, I, I go, they invite me over to their house for games and stuff like that. And it turns out they actually do have emotions. You know, I just, I never knew that. I sort of figured when this was as good as it got in church, that was as far as it went. But I found that when the true worship comes along, then it's suddenly, alright, okay, alright, let's go, come on, let's go! You know, and suddenly I'm doing all I can to extol the virtue of my Hope. And I often sit there and think how quickly we make something fun and good and a great recreation and a nice something to distract ourselves and have things to talk about with our friends and we make it an ultimate thing. You know, and we can do that with our work. You know, where it becomes our ultimate thing. And we can begin to see the signs of it. When suddenly work is taking us away from fellowship with other believers, it's taking us out of our small group, it's taking us away from church on a Sunday morning. You know, suddenly we start making our plane reservations for Saturday night instead of Sunday night. And all of these things, our wife starts going, well, when are you going to be home long enough for us and the kids to see you? And we begin to realize that we put a disproportionate amount of hope and importance on the job. The problem isn't that we're that uh, we're working too hard. The problem is we've lost perspective on where the hard work belongs. You see, if I'm doing my job as unto the Lord, then I'm doing the job in such a way that I can explain to Him how it fits in with the rest of the roles that He's given me. He says, well, you know, I want to be able to go to Jesus and say, you know, here's, here's the way I'm working and here's the way I'm trying to, to balance that with the role you've given me as a, a husband and the role you've given me as a father. You see, I'm going to report to him in my work in all spheres and all roles he's given me because he's the one who's not only given me my job, but he's given me my wife and giving me my children. And I need to work as into him in those areas as well. And for those of you who are married and have children, you know it's work. You know, it's work. And just like your work at work, it has thorns and thistles too. We call it attitude. You know, for our children. We call it stubbornness in ourselves. Uh, you know, we call it impatience. We call it a variety of other things. But it's not just easy, is it? 
As a matter of fact, I know some guys who hide at work because it's harder to do work at home, you know, i.e. on relationships, than it is to be at work. At work, they're in charge. At home, they're not so sure. You know, how are we working? And are we working as into the Lord? Now, some people, you know, to be honest, are in a situation where you are just trying to figure out, you know, what, you know, you should be doing. And, uh, and so I always like to say something about, for those who aren't sure, let me give a paradigm uh, that I, I think is supported biblically, but it's my paradigm. How I help young, younger people, particularly people in job transition, think about the kind of work that they ought to find. Now, immediately I stole this idea from Jim Collins in Good to Great uh, when he was talking about a hedgehog principle. I really like that chapter. If you haven't read the book, it's worth reading just for fun. Or listen to it on CD, it's even better. Um, but the hedgehog principle is a principle of a company that helps them stay focused and true to who they are and what they ought to be doing. And it has three components. And so I've modified them so that we can think about what we ought to be doing in work. You know, the first question to ask about work is, what do I believe God has uniquely made me to do? What has He uniquely made me to do? What has He given me ability to do? So, for instance, you know, I'm a liberal arts guy. You know, I, I love reading novels, and I like reading history, and I, and I like reading that. I'm probably, engineering would not be my thing. If I was an engineer, and I worked for the state, I would encourage you to never drive across a bridge ever again, you know, because that's just not what God's made me to do. You know, God's made me do other things. So what has God made me to do? What has He made me good at? You know, what has He given me the gifts for? There's a second component of that, and that is, uh, what do other people invite me to do? In other words, it's one thing to assess myself to have gifts, but what's the, what we call in our denomination, we call an external calling. Who's confirming that I have the gifts and abilities that I think I do? You know, so, you know, it's not only something I, I do well, I think I do well, but someone else out there is affirming that as well. So oftentimes I tell you, a lot of young guys who are just love the Lord and are growing in their faith, they think that the only good thing a Christian could do in terms of work is go into Christian service. And so they want to be missionaries or pastors. And that's great. God calls some. But God doesn't call nearly as many as think they're being called. And where it shows itself is when they get out of school and they start trying to find a place that will actually provide for them and their family you know, through ministry service. And they'll come to me all frustrated and say, why am I, not, am I not getting a job? And I'm like, because who in the world would hire you to do this? In other words, they, they love it. They're made to do some of those aspects, but... It's not something that the world, the church in this particular case, or the job market is valuing. If that's the case, not to reevaluate. That's reevaluate. If there is no job, then I need to rethink it. I need to think, well, even though I have these gifts and abilities, this isn't the area. What is the area that I should be in? And the third component of it is, what will provide for your house, household? Now, if it's just you, that's a very low bar. You know, congratulations. If it's you and a spouse, that's a little higher. You, a spouse, and children, that's a little bit more. Paul says if you don't provide for your own, your own household, then he says you're worse than an unbeliever. So you've got to take that factor into consideration. What do I have to get some abilities to do? You know, what do other people value? You know, and what will provide? And I'll throw in another element that really goes in the first. Is what do I love doing? What do I love doing? You know, it's funny, people always tell me they, they don't know, you know, how God's going to lead them into doing something. 
And I asked the question, well, what do you love doing? And they said, and I, I love it when they say, well, that's irrelevant, isn't it? I'm like, what? And they said, well, that's irrelevant. I should go with my passions. And I say, okay, let me back up just a second. I asked about the, the children's catechism first question. Does anybody know what it is? Who made you? As a children, the little children, for little kids. And the answer is, everybody tell me the answer. It's a one-word answer. I'll give you a hint. Start with G. Answer with <coughs> Who made you? God. God. That's right. Or in Chicago, God. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, which still throws me a little bit. Uh, I got a letter about making fun of that one sermon, by the way. It turns out they don't appreciate me pointing that out. But uh, I was a little curious about whether we were on the same deity map. You know, and I'm like, well, I've been growing up worshiping the Lord God. And I came here, and you guys are worshiping the Lord God. And I just want to make sure they're the same, right? <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> so who made you? God made you. You know, God made you. Does that mean He made your personality? That He made your brain, which is sending you signals about what you like and don't like? He's made. He made your temperament. He made all of those things. If He made all of those things, if He's the one who poured the concrete, do you not think that He's using that, among other things, including His Word and wise counsel and opportunity, that He's using that to direct you into what He wants you to do? He's made you for this. That's what our passions are telling us. Our passions are telling us, this is what I, this is what I as Eric Little said, this is what I feel God's pleasure when I do. And so we take all of that into consideration. Usually where we find those things triangulate. You know, what we feel made to do and love to do, what we have the opportunity to do because there's a need, and what will pay the bills is usually where we need to be. And so as for you young guys, you're thinking about what to do. Some of you guys are in college. And you're like, you know, where do I even start? Begin asking those questions. I could do anything. You know, what would I be doing? Secondly, if you're a young person, this is what I tell my own children. This is all for free. It's not in the Bible. Uh, but... Uh, I would start meeting as many people as I can. You know, one of the most important things these days is, you know, putting yourself out there, getting to know people, because whenever you're trying to find that second component, the person who wants you to do the job, it helps to have met a a few people. You know, and so if you're young and in college, do internships, get to know people. That's just for free, and that's the... I'm drilling that into my child's head. I've actually, you know, got the hole out. I'm pouring it in there. You know, meet as many people as possible uh, because it's a different world. So when we begin thinking about our work in these ways, you know, we understand that the work is dignified because God's dignified it, both in commanding us to do it and modeling it for us, uh, that uh, work is uh, also necessary. That God has designed it, you know, to, to be the way He provides for us. Often people, I've had people say, you know, I don't need to worry about work because the Lord's going to provide for me. And I often, I, I, you know, I chuckle because we confuse God's ultimate purposes, you know, with His providence and how He fulfills those purposes. We forget that God not only declares the ends, but declares the means. He declares, yes, you will be provided for, but He declares you will be provided for normally through the means of you working and getting paid. Just because you worked and got paid doesn't mean that God didn't do anything. It's not like Bart Simpson in the Simpsons episode where they asked him to pray at Thanksgiving. And he says, you know, we went to the grocery store, we bought the food, we fixed the food. Hey, God, thanks for nothing. You know, Bart's confusing it because he's saying, look, I'm looking at the means. I didn't see God there. And he's not realizing God used those very means to provide him a meal. You know, you can say a cartoon character's a jerk, right? Get away with it. So... 
But he uses the means. And that's the great thing about the Lord. But then lastly, is we want to be in a situation where we can do our labor as though we're filling out our job you know, performance and review to, to Jesus Himself. You know, Paul emphasizes that last. I'll end with, uh, uh, with his uh, encouragement to the Ephesian believers in Ephesians chapter 6, 5-8. through He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. There's so many wonderful things in that passage. First he says, when you labor, don't do it only when the eye of the boss is on you. That's not as eye pleasers, that's what that means. In other words, I'm not doing it to be recognized by people. I'm doing it because I know it's always being recognized by God. But then the one thing I love about the Bible, and this is something that most Christians don't realize, is that, the, the, as C.S. Lewis says, the promises of reward are staggering. Mm-hmm. Did you hear what Paul said? If you do your work this way, the Lord who sees what you do will reward you. I don't know. I don't know how. But I know if He's rewarding, it's going to be good. You know, there's some people when they say they've got a gift for you, you know it's going to be good. You know, I've got friends like that in my life. They call me up and go, Chris, I have something for you. I'm like, all right, it's a new iPad. (laughs) How much more when God says there's going to be a reward for you when you do your labor like this? It's not for naught. So anyway, be encouraged. You know, what you do, whatever it is, whether it's a student or a teacher or a business owner or a salesman, you can do for the glory of the Lord as we as we kind of remember these things and pursue it by His grace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you that uh, you've let, let us hang out and talk and, and think and just be reminded for many of us of what we know is true. Lord, that you didn't make us to do nothing. You made us to labor. Some people here are are still laboring in, in their jobs, providing for their families. Others have had the freedom to not have to do that. And now they can labor in their avocations where they don't need uh, money. But we pray that whether the labor is done vocationally or avocationally, that it will be done for your glory. That it will be done out of the gifts and abilities that you've given. And Lord, that it will be done, Lord, so that your kingdom might grow on this earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we have uh, we have about ten minutes. We can ask questions. <laughs> I know, but the way I talk, we might just one get question. one question. And, yeah. What do you think the nearest chances are? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, being a carpenter, do you see Jesus ever hit his thumb with a hammer? Uh, yeah. I bet it hurt. You know. You know, in terms of perfection, it was his, it was one of his younger brothers' fault. They moved the board. <laughs> you know. I, you know, I, carpentry was very different in the first century, as you know, and so our idea, you know, hammers and nails was a very different concept. But uh, I mean, he got splinters. I can guarantee there were splinters. So, you know. What do you think? I mean, when you don't need to make money anymore, mm-hmm. um, so you, you you said that people who are retired, so that they don't need to make money, right? So depending on what your age, you can find people like that in the thirties, forties. Absolutely, I've got we've got some. Yeah. Okay, so what are they supposed to do? Um, a lot of this was was based on other things. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wish you were my church. We talk very directly about it. Uh, it is 
God still makes us to work. And I think one of the fallacies that we have is that work is just something you do until you're 65 or until you have enough money to not have to work anymore. What I would say is that's when you stop working in order to provide for your family. That's not when you stop working. We're never going to stop working. We're going to work for eternity. You know, and so the question is, how how am I working? What do I have the opportunity to work in? So maybe it only has two two tracks to it. What do I love doing? What energizes me? And you know, what will promote the kingdom of God? I think that's the thing that we can begin asking. And then, what do I see an opportunity for? If you're at uh, Jacob's Well, I guarantee you, sit down there and say, you know, I've got some time. And uh, what can I what could I help with? You know, or what other ministries can I be involved in? Right now in Chicago Presbyter- in our Presbytery, we're starting a foundation to try to accelerate fundraising development and uh, support of church planting in the city. Uh, it's being led by two guys who own their own businesses uh, who don't need to work nearly as much as they used to anymore. And their whole goal is to come alongside the church and be a development guy, i.e. find big money, and uh, then help church planners and pastors make good decisions in terms of strategic land purchases and uh, personnel decisions. They're, gonna, they're willing to use their expertise, gifts, and abilities to be a blessing, not just in theory, but in reality. You know, that kind of idea. You know, that's thinking out of the box. How many people would think, well, I could use my gifts to help raise a million bucks for church planning. But they're really good at raising a million bucks. You know, it's that kind of, you know, that kind of thinking. As we pray, Lord, what opportunity could I still use the things I'm good at, the things you made me for, that I could use them not needing necessarily a paycheck at the end of the day. You know, and I'd say seek wise counsel. One of the ways we make good decisions is by uh, by talking to those who have wisdom. So talk to people that you can see having done that. They've made the most of their retirement. They've made the most of the freedom that they have. And ask, you know, where did you find out about this? How could I find out about that? Networking and those kinds of conversations, you know, really goes a long way. So I mean, that's where I would start. And uh, once people. Most people know you have the time and the ability and that you actually show up and do it. The opportunities really just start coming left, right, and center. I've got a guy, one of my elders, has uh, been retired since his mid-30s, and he's now 52 or so. And uh, he's the most sought-after guy in our church because he's wise, gives good counsel. He, uh, you know, ironically, two days a week, he's working with kids' programs just because he loves kids, and so he's on the floor teaching four-year-olds. And I always chuckle. I'm like, the mommy's dropping these kids off. I have no idea who's playing on the floor with their kids. You know, but, uh, you know, he just loves it. He's also, he's also helping guys think about starting businesses. He's, he's like a free consultant. You know, and he just loves it. And he runs triathlons and climbs mountains, you know. He's, uh, he's a little nutty, but, you know, I mean, he just, and as he does these things, he gets more and more opportunities. And so a lot of it's just taking that first step. But sometimes, I mean, people, not everybody, like you said, are called to be in the ministry. That's right. So others might be, they continue working the rest of their oh, life. Oh, absolutely. Even though they don't need the money, but absolutely. they give it away. Absolutely. No, a lot of people do that. Uh, I, I, you know, I hope to be able to work until I'm dead, you know, at what I do, you know, uh, I'll work, just, I'm, that's why I like younger pastors, because I'm like, dude, like when I'm really old, you got to let me like visit people in the hospital or something, I, I just want to keep doing what I do, um, no, I think that's perfectly legitimate, I think the idea you quit working because you don't need to anymore financially, that's just crazy, you know, if you don't need the money more, great, there are plenty of people who do, share 
That's a, as a matter of fact, uh, oh yeah, that's exactly what Paul said. He said, instruct the rich, or, or excuse me, James, in, or no, Peter. I just preached about this. I do remember. Uh, you know, it's, uh, he says, uh, instruct the rich of this world uh, to be generous. Okay. So you've got extra money to share. There are plenty of people who need it. So, and that's that's great fun, right? Hey, Bill Gates seems to have fun giving some of that money away. And he's giving away a fraction. You know, it's so funny. Everybody's like, oh, Bill Gates is so generous. I'm like, do you know what the percentage of his generosity is? It ain't a tithe yet. Whenever it is, we'll know. <laughs> I'm willing to help him with that. I, you know, if I had him on speed dial, I'd call him. Does it talk in the Bible that we'll be working in heaven? It, you know, I think the reason why I suggest that, it doesn't say explicitly, you know, it says we'll serve, we'll rule. Those expressions are there. We'll rule and reign. So that's a job, right? If you've ever been in charge of something, you know that's a job. Uh, but it's because of the fact that it was part of the creation before the fall. So it's part of the perfect world. Part of the perfect world is that man has been made to, to work, you know. And so I think it's an extrapolation, you know, from that. You know, and when you hear the new heavens and new earth, new earth described both in Old Testament prophecy uh, as well as new, there's still things going on. There's still a city. There's still all of this cultural activity going on. Well, how does that happen? You know, I, I don't think it's robotic. I think we're still involved in the in the practice of culture making. You know, and but once again, I'm, that is what we call starting with a clear principle, and then we're you know extrapolating from that. So does it say? You know, I'll work at Walmart in heaven. No, it does not. It does not. I hope not. <laughs> God works. What's that? God works. Excuse me? God. Yes, Jesus says, my father's always working and I work even until this very moment. So clearly, yeah, exactly. So do, does that mean that the Packers will be working in heaven? <laughs> yeah, it could be. You know, uh, there won't there there won't be an IR list though. <laughs> they won't be working next year. So. Yeah. But thou shalt not drop any passes. So. Yeah, yeah. All, you know, I don't know that competition would be even interesting if everybody, you know, if they never dropped the ball. If they, you know, you take out the sin aspect of stuff, it really becomes it becomes boring. You know, right? Yeah. If the Packers are in does that mean the Bears are? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, this uh, is spiraling. You know, I, I, I always try to be very careful not to judge the heart of anybody. You know? yeah. You guys, you talked about the ministry to uh, guys who've been unemployed. Mm-hmm. Do you, at your church, do you have any other ministries like that speak to men about vocation or? A lot of it's through pastoral counseling and counseling with our elders. Like I said, my retired guy I was mentioning, he does it all the time, you know, just as an individual. People come to him when they're thinking about job change or thinking about starting their own business. And we have several elders that do that, you know. So it's very informal. It's more discipleship oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do classes sometimes on vocation in which we talk about kind of how to pick a job. I teach a college class, and so we'll, once a year we'll talk about that uh, with them as well. Mm-hmm. It's, not, uh, it's not like I have a whole... Ministry that's always doing that, but as uh, as a on need basis kind of thing. So, but it's it's fun. I love talking to people about that kind of stuff. Yes, sir. Is it quick one? Yeah. So, so how do you help men who are in a job, 
the movie is crappy. Yeah. Because they're really not all for Yeah. But they've got a family and kids. It's sure. a bad job marketing. It's like, it's not that easy to just say, okay, I'm not. I shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you help them reconcile that? Yeah. Well, the beautiful thing is the New Testament is full of instruction about trials. And, uh, and that really is a trial. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in a situation where, you know, clear biblical commandment, you know, you, you need to provide for your family, you know, has to take precedent over, you know, sort of the lack of clarity in terms of well, where should I be, mm-hmm. you know. And so, you know, you want to make sure that they've got people around them, loving them, holding them accountable, praying for them, make sure for us, our small group structure is the way we do that, and make sure they're a small group. Probably go ahead and get them involved with the guys who are in the transit, job transition group so that they can begin talking and praying and thinking, because that group is doing a lot of thinking in creative ways of the, to find jobs, and to go at it that way and just encourage them to be patient. And we have done that. Our deacons particularly will come alongside of guys that are in tough situations uh, like that. And uh, our deacons are... Our deacons are our tough guys. They encourage guys, see, God will give you the strength to do it. God will give you the strength to do it. Because there are plenty of those times in our life. You know, I don't care what job you're in, there are some moments of that in your, in your, in your year or in your month. You know, for me, it's called Saturday night. You know, it's, uh, I pray that the Lord will come back every Saturday night. You know, because I preach on Sunday. You know, I'm like, oh Lord, it would be so much better to be worshiping you tomorrow in heaven than, them listening to me, you know, but uh, so far he hadn't, so it's, uh, you know, I still wait. He must not agree. <laughs> he, he, he's got a better plan. Alright, well, I do have one final question. Sure. Since I was on the show, kind of I get to end with the question. We, You covered a, a, a lot of stuff this weekend. It was, it was great. Uh, our topic was redeeming manhood. Um, so here's a loaded question. Sure. How would you summarize maybe in a, a few sentences or a paragraph that we can take with us in thinking about um, with God's help, with God's power, redeeming manhood in our own lives, in our own cities, in our own world. How would you kind of summarize what we went through? Yeah, I, what I would say is um, our default setting is to take our cues about what being a man is, either from our parent, from our father, or against our father, or from the world. And I'm saying that's the wrong place to look. You know, if we want to have a, the right idea of the way God sees a man, the way God made a man, we have to go back to what he says is the reason he did it in the first place. And so instead of defaulting to what the world is saying, because that changes. You know, the idea of our modern world idea of a man is very different than it was a century or two centuries or a thousand years ago. But God's idea of a man hasn't changed. He's made men the way that they should be, to glorify Him. And He's given instruction on how to do that. And so the summary is, you know, try to turn the volume of the world down. And turn the volume of the Word up. And listen, what is it that makes us essentially men? And don't be afraid of that. You know, because there are times where that's going to be countercultural. In a world that's anti-authoritarian, when you talk about part of being a man is that I express dominion, you know, in the context where God places me, the world is going to say, man, you're on a power trip. You know, if you say, maybe you should use those terms, I don't know. Or, you know, if you say, you know, my goal, if you're a single person, my goal is to find a wife who will, you know, I can rejoice over leading her, and she can rejoice in submitting to my leadership. Man, you say that in any college class, unless you're at a Christian college, and even some of those, and people start throwing stuff at you. And you have to remember that you're not looking for the approval of men, but the approval of God.
It says, let every man be a liar and God be true. And so instead of looking for those things for my identity, I'm going to look to the Word of God and what it says. You know, if I'm going to have a discussion about it, I'm going to have a discussion based on the Word. And I think if we do that, then we're always going to come back to these basic principles. That God has made us a beautiful representative and reflection of Him. He's made us to be in relationship. He's made us to represent Him and rule, which is stewardship and service. And He's made us to work. And as we figure out how being a man in those contexts you know, fleshes itself out to the glory of God, I believe we'll bless our, our wives, our co-workers, our communities. And even though they may disagree with us, they'll, be, they'll sure be glad we're around. Uh, it, the New Testament, and I'm fairly sure it's Peter, but I don't have it written down on my iPad. He says, you know, let your good... Well, actually, Jesus is sort of a map. Let your good works be seen among men that they might give praise to your Father in Heaven. They do that even when they disagree with you. They sure, yeah, I'm sure glad that guys like that. And when we're the men that God designed us to be, it'll bring God praise. So that's what well, I was saying. Quick, thank you very much. Well, just thank you. We're going to sing one last closing song, and then I have a few more announcements, and we'll take a picture, and then uh, we'll go from there. So if you would please stand.